The second part of chapter twenty nine of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. The second part of chapter twenty nine. Continental. The next day they descended at the tiny railway station of Hornhausen, at the end of the tiny valley railway. It was snow everywhere, a white, perfect cradle of snow, new and frozen, sweeping up on either side, black crags and white sweeps of silver towards the blue, pale heavens. As they stepped out on the naked platform, with only snow around and above, Gudrun shrank as if it chilled her heart. "'My God, Jerry,' she said, turning to Gerald with sudden intimacy, "'you've done it now.' "'What?' She made a faint gesture, indicating the world on either hand. "'Look at it!' She seemed afraid to go on. He laughed. They were in the heart of the mountains. From high above, on either side, swept down the white fold of snow, so that one seemed small and tiny in a valley of pure concrete heaven, all strangely radiant and changeless and silent. "'It makes one feel so small and alone,' said Ursula, turning to Birkin and laying her hand on his arm. "'You're not sorry you've come, are you?' said Gerald to Gudrun. She looked doubtful. They went out of the station between banks of snow. "'Ah!' said Gerald, sniffing the air in elation. "'This is perfect. There's our sledge. We'll walk a bit. We'll run up the road.' Gudrun, always doubtful, dropped her heavy coat on the sledge, as he did his, and they set off. Suddenly she threw up her head and set off, scudding along the road of snow, pulling her cap down over her ears. Her blue bright dress fluttered in the wind, her thick scarlet stockings were brilliant above the whiteness. Gerald watched her. She seemed to be rushing towards her fate, and leaving him behind. He let her get some distance. Then, loosening his limbs, he went after her. Everywhere was deep and silent snow. Great snow eaves weighed down the broad-roofed Tyrolese houses that were sunk to the window-sashes in snow. Peasant women, full-skirted, wearing each a crossover shawl and thick snow-boots, turned in the way to look at the soft, determined girl, running with such heavy fleetness from the man who was overtaking her, but not gaining any power over her. They passed the inn with its painted shutters and balcony, a few cottages half buried in the snow, then the snow-buried silent sawmill by the roofed bridge which crossed the hidden stream, over which they ran into the very depth of the untouched sheets of snow. 
It was a silence and a sheer whiteness exhilarating to madness. But the perfect silence was most terrifying, isolating the soul, surrounding the heart with frozen air. "'It's a marvellous place for all that,' said Gudrun, looking into his eyes with a strange, meaning look. His soul leapt. "'God!' he said. A fierce electric energy seemed to flow over all his limbs, his muscles were surcharged, his hands felt hard with strength. They walked along rapidly up the snow road that was marked by withered branches of trees stuck in at intervals. He and she were separate, like opposite poles of one fierce energy but they felt powerful enough to leap over the confines of life into the forbidden places, and back again. Birkin and Ursula were running along also over the snow. He had disposed of the luggage, and they had a little start of the sledges. Ursula was excited and happy, but she kept turning suddenly to catch hold of Birkin's arm, to make sure of him. "'This is something I never expected,' she said. "'It is a different world here.' They went on into a snow-meadow. There they were overtaken by the sledge that came tinkling through the silence. It was another mile before they came upon Gudrun and Gerald on the steep up-climb beside the pink half-buried shrine. Then they passed into a gully, where were walls of black rock and a river filled with snow, and a still blue sky above. Through a covered bridge they went, drumming roughly over the boards, crossing the snow-bed once more, then slowly up and up, the horses walking swiftly, the driver cracking his long whip as he walked beside, and calling his strange, wild, Hugh! Hugh! The walls of rock, passing slowly by, till they emerged again between slopes and masses of snow. Up and up, gradually they went, through the cold shadow radiance of the afternoon, silenced by the imminence of the mountains, the luminous, dazing sides of snow that rose above them and fell away beneath. They came forth at last, in a little high table-land of snow, where stood the last peaks of snow, like the heart-petals of an open rose. In the midst of the last deserted valleys of heaven stood a lonely building, with brown wooden walls and white heavy roof, deep and deserted in the waste of snow, like a dream. It stood like a rock that had rolled down from the last steep slopes, a rock that had taken the form of a house, and was now half buried. It was unbelievable that one could live there, uncrushed by all this terrible waste of whiteness and silence, and clear, upper, ringing cold. Yet the sledges ran up in fine style, 
People came to the door, laughing and excited. The floor of the hostel rang hollow. The passage was wet with snow. It was a real warm interior. The newcomers tramped up the bare wooden stairs, following the serving-woman. Gudrun and Gerald took the first bedroom. In a moment they found themselves alone in a bare, smallish, close-shut room that was all of golden-coloured wood—floor, walls, ceiling, door, all of the same warm gold panelling of oiled pine. There was a window opposite the door, but low down because the roof sloped. Under the slope of the ceiling was a table with wash-hand bowl and jug, and across another table with mirror. On either side the door were two beds, piled high with an enormous blue-checked over-bolster. Enormous! This was all. No cupboard, none of the amenities of life. Here they were shut up together, in this cell of golden-coloured wood, with two blue-checked beds. They looked at each other and laughed, frightened by this naked nearness of isolation. A man knocked and came in with the luggage. He was a sturdy fellow, with flattish cheekbones, rather pale, and with coarse fair moustache. Gudrun watched him put down the bags in silence, then tramp heavily out. "'It isn't too rough, is it?' Gerald asked. The bedroom was not very warm, and she shivered slightly. "'It is wonderful!' she equivocated. Look at the colour of this panelling, it's wonderful, like being inside a nut. He was standing watching her, feeling his short-cut moustache, leaning back slightly and watching her with his keen, undaunted eyes, dominated by the constant passion that was like a doom upon him. She went and crouched down in front of the window, curious. "'Oh, but this!' she cried involuntarily, almost in pain. In front was a valley shut in under the sky, the last huge slopes of snow and black rock, and at the end, like the navel of the earth, a white folded wall, and two peaks glimmering in the late light. Straight in front ran the cradle of silent snow, between the great slopes that were fringed with a little roughness of pine-trees, like hair, round the base. But the cradle of snow ran on to the eternal closing in, where the walls of snow and rock rose impenetrable and the mountain peaks above were in heaven immediate. This was the centre, the knot, the navel of the world, where the earth belonged to the skies, pure, unapproachable, impassable. It filled Gudrun with a strange rapture. She crouched in front of the window, clenching her face in her hands, in a sort of trance. At last 
She had arrived. She had reached her place. Here, at last, she folded her venture, and settled down like a crystal in the navel of snow, and was gone. Gerald bent over her, and was looking out over her shoulder. Already he felt he was alone. She was gone. She was completely gone, and there was icy vapour round his heart. He saw the blind valley, the great cul-de-sac of snow and mountain peaks under the heaven, and there was no way out. The terrible silence and cold, and the glamorous whiteness of the dusk wrapped him round, and she remained crouching before the window, as at a shrine, a shadow. "'Do you like it?' he asked, in a voice that sounded detached and foreign. At least she might acknowledge he was with her. But she only averted her soft, mute face a little from his gaze, and he knew that there were tears in her eyes, her own tears, tears of her strange religion that put him to naught. Quite suddenly he put his hand under her chin and lifted up her face to him. Her dark blue eyes, in their wetness of tears, dilated, as if she was startled in her very soul. They looked at him through their tears in terror and a little horror. His light blue eyes were keen, small-pupilled, and unnatural in their vision. Her lips parted as she breathed with difficulty. The passion came up in him, stroke after stroke, like the ringing of a bronze bell, so strong and unflawed and indomitable. His knees tightened to bronze as he hung above her soft face, whose lips parted and whose eyes dilated in a strange violation. In the grasp of his hand her chin was unutterably soft and silken. He felt strong as winter, his hands were living metal, invincible and not to be turned aside, his heart rang like a bell clanging inside him. He took her up in his arms, she was soft and inert motionless. All the while her eyes, in which the tears had not yet dried, were dilated as if in a kind of swoon of fascination and helplessness. He was superhumanly strong and unflawed, as if invested with supernatural force. He lifted her close and folded her against him. Her softness, her inert, relaxed weight, lay against his own surcharged, bronze-like limbs, in a heaviness of desirability that would destroy him if he were not fulfilled. She moved convulsively, recoiling away from him. His heart went up like a flame of ice. He closed over her like steel. He would destroy her rather than be denied. But the overweening power of his body was too much for her. She relaxed again, and lay loose and soft, panting in a little delirium. And to him 
she was so sweet, she was such bliss of release, that he would have suffered a whole eternity of torture, rather than forego one second of this pang of unsurpassable bliss. "'My God!' he said to her, his face drawn and strange, transfigured. "'What next?' She lay perfectly still, with a still childlike face and dark eyes, looking at him. She was lost, fallen right away. "'I shall always love you,' he said, looking at her. But she did not hear. She lay looking at him as at something she could never understand, never, as a child looks at a grown-up person, without hope of understanding, only submitting. He kissed her, kissed her eyes shut, so that she could not look any more. He wanted something now, some recognition, some sign, some admission. But she only lay silent and childlike and remote, like a child that is overcome and cannot understand, only feels lost. He kissed her again, giving up. "'Shall we go down and have coffee and kuchen?' he asked. The twilight was falling slate-blue at the window. She closed her eyes, closed away the monotonous level of dead wonder, and opened them again to the everyday world. "'Yes,' she said briefly, regaining her will with a click. She went again to the window. Blue evening had fallen over the cradle of snow, and over the great pallid slopes. But in the heaven the peaks of snow were rosy, glistening like transcendent, radiant spikes of blossom in the heavenly upper world, so lovely and beyond. Gudrun saw all their loveliness. She knew how immortally beautiful they were, great pistils of rose-coloured, snow-fed fire in the blue twilight of the heaven. She could see it. She knew it, but she was not of it. She was divorced, debarred, a soul shut out. With a last look of remorse she turned away, and was doing her hair. He had unstrapped the luggage and was waiting, watching her. She knew he was watching her. It made her a little hasty and feverish in her precipitation. They went downstairs, both with a strange other-world look on their faces, and with a glow in their eyes. They saw Birkin and Ursula sitting at the long table in a corner, waiting for them. How good and simple they looked together, Gudrun thought, jealously. She envied them some spontaneity, a childish sufficiency to which she herself could never approach. They seemed such children to her. "'Such good Kranzkuchen!' 
cried Ursula greedily. So good! Right, said Gudrun. Can we have café mit Kranzkuchen? she added to the waiter. And she seated herself on the bench beside Gerald. Birkin, looking at them, felt a pain of tenderness for them. I think the place is really wonderful, Gerald, he said. Prachtvoll and wunderbar and wunderschön and unbeschreiblich, and all the other German adjectives. Gerald broke into a slight smile. I like it, he said. The tables of white scrubbed wood were placed round three sides of the room, as in a guest-house. Birkin and Ursula sat with their backs to the wall, which was of oiled wood, and Gerald and Gudrun sat in the corner next them, near to the stove. It was a fairly large place, with a tiny bar, just like a country inn, but quite simple and bare, and all of oiled wood, ceilings and walls and floor the only furniture being the tables and benches going round three sides, the great green stove and the bar and the doors on the fourth side. The windows were double and quite uncurtained. It was early evening. The coffee came, hot and good, and a whole ring of cake. "'A whole Kuchen!' cried Ursula. "'They give you more than us. I want some of yours.' There were other people in the place, ten altogether, so Birkin had found out. Two artists, three students, a man and wife, and a professor and two daughters, all Germans. The four English people, being newcomers, sat in their coin of vantage to watch. The Germans peeked in at the door, called a word to the waiter, and went away again. It was not meal-time, so they did not come into this dining-room, but betook themselves, when their boots were changed, to the Reunionsaal. The English visitors could hear the occasional twanging of a zither, the strumming of a piano, snatches of laughter and shouting and singing, a faint vibration of voices. The whole building being of wood, it seemed to carry every sound like a drum, but instead of increasing each particular noise, it decreased it, so that the sound of the zither seemed tiny, as if a diminutive zither were playing somewhere, and it seemed the piano must be a small one, like a little spinet. The host came when the coffee was finished. He was a Tyrolese, broad, rather flat-cheeked, with a pale, pock-marked skin and flourishing moustaches. Would you like to go to the reunion saal, to be introduced to the other ladies and gentlemen? he asked, bending forward and smiling, showing his large, strong teeth. His blue eyes went quickly from one to the other. He was not quite sure of his ground with these English people. He was unhappy, too, because he spoke no English, and he was not sure whether to try his French. "'Shall we go to the reunion saal and be introduced to the other people?' repeated Gerald, laughing. There was a moment's hesitation. "'I suppose we'd better—better better break the ice,' said Birkin. The women rose, rather flushed, and the Wirt's black, beetle-like, broad-shouldered figure went on ignominiously in front, towards the noise. He opened the door, and ushered the four strangers into the playroom. 
Instantly a silence fell. A slight embarrassment came over the company. The newcomers had a sense of many blond faces looking their way. Then the host was bowing to a short, energetic-looking man with large moustaches, and saying in a low voice, Herr Professor, darf ich vorstellen? The Herr Professor was prompt and energetic. He bowed low to the English people, smiling, and began to be a comrade at once. Nehmen die Herrschaften teil an unserer Unterhaltung, he said, with a vigorous suavity, his voice curling up in the question. The four English people smiled, lounging with an attentive uneasiness in the middle of the room. Gerald, who was spokesman, said that they would willingly take part in the entertainment. Gudrun and Ursula, laughing, excited, felt the eyes of all the men upon them, and they lifted their heads and looked nowhere, and felt royal. The professor announced the names of those present, sans ceremonie. There was a bowing to the wrong people and to the right people. Everybody was there except the man and wife. The two tall, clear-skinned, athletic daughters of the professor, with their plain-cut dark-blue blouses and loaden skirts, their rather long, strong necks, their clear blue eyes and carefully banded hair, and their blushes, bowed and stood back. The three students bowed very low, in the humble hope of making an impression of extreme good breeding. Then there was a thin, dark-skinned man with full eyes, an odd creature like a child, and like a troll, quick, detached. He bowed slightly. His companion, a large, fair young man, stylishly dressed, blushed to the eyes and bowed very low. It was over. Herr Lurker was giving us a recitation in the Cologne dialect, said the professor. He must forgive us for interrupting him, said Gerald. We should like very much to hear it. There was instantly a bowing and an offering of seats. Gudrun and Ursula, Gerald and Birkin, sat in the deep sofas against the wall. The room was of naked oiled panelling like the rest of the house. It had a piano, sofas and chairs, and a couple of tables with books and magazines. In its complete absence of decoration, save for the big blue stove, it was cosy and pleasant. Herr Lurker was the little man with the boyish figure and the round, full, sensitive-looking head, and the quick, full eyes like a mouse's. He glanced swiftly from one to the other of the strangers, and held himself aloof. "'Please go on with the recitation,' said the professor suavely, with his slight authority. Lurker, who was sitting hunched on the piano-stool, blinked and did not answer. "'It would be a great pleasure,' said Ursula, who had been getting the sentence ready in German for some minutes. Then, suddenly, the small, unresponding man swung aside towards his previous audience, and broke forth, exactly as he had broken off, in a controlled, mocking voice, giving an imitation of a quarrel between an old Cologne woman and a railway guard. 
His body was slight and unformed like a boy's, but his voice was mature, sardonic. Its movement had the flexibility of essential energy, and of a mocking, penetrating understanding. Gudrun could not understand a word of his monologue, but she was spellbound watching him. He must be an artist. Nobody else could have such fine adjustment and singleness. The Germans were doubled up with laughter, hearing his strange, droll words, his droll phrases of dialect. And in the midst of their paroxysms, they glanced with deference at the four English strangers, the elect. Gudrun and Ursula were forced to laugh. The room rang with shouts of laughter. The blue eyes of the professor's daughters were swimming over with laughter tears, their clear cheeks were flushed crimson with mirth. Their father broke out in the most astonishing peals of hilarity. The students bowed their heads on their knees in excess of joy. Ursula looked round amazed. The laughter was bubbling out of her involuntarily. She looked at Gudrun. Gudrun looked at her, and the two sisters burst out laughing, carried away. Lurker glanced at them swiftly with his full eyes. Birkin was sniggering involuntarily. Gerald Cry sat erect, with a glistening look of amusement on his face, and the laughter crashed out again, in wild paroxysms. The professor's daughters were reduced to shaking helplessness. The veins of the professor's neck were swollen, his face was purple, he was strangled in ultimate silent spasms of laughter. The students were shouting half-articulated words that tailed off in helpless explosions. Then suddenly the rapid patter of the artist ceased. There were little whoops of subsiding mirth. Ursula and Gudrun were wiping their eyes, and the professor was crying loudly. Das war's das war famos, wirklich famos echoed his exhausted daughters faintly. "'And we couldn't understand it!' cried Ursula. "'Oh, Leider, Leider!' cried the professor. "'You couldn't understand it!' cried the students, let loose at last in speech with the newcomers. "'Ja, da ist wirklich schade! Das ist schade, gnädige Frau! Wissen Sie!' The mixture was made, the newcomers were stirred into the party like new ingredients. The whole room was alive. Gerald was in his element. He talked freely and excitedly. His face glistened with a strange amusement. Perhaps even Birkin in the end would break forth. He was shy and withheld, though full of attention. Ursula was prevailed upon to sing Annie Lowry, as the professor called it. There was a hush of extreme deference. She had never been so flattered in her life. Gudrun accompanied her on the piano, playing from memory. Ursula had a beautiful ringing voice, but usually no confidence. She spoiled everything. This evening 
she felt conceited and untrammelled. Birkin was well in the background, she shone almost in reaction. The Germans made her feel fine and infallible, she was liberated into overweening self-confidence. She felt like a bird flying in the air as her voice soared out, enjoying herself extremely in the balance and flight of the song, like the motion of a bird's wings that is up in the wind, sliding and playing on the air, she played with sentimentality, supported by rapturous attention. She was very happy singing that song by herself, full of a conceit of emotion and power, working upon all those people and upon herself, exerting herself with gratification, giving immeasurable gratification to the Germans. At the end the Germans were all touched with admiring, delicious melancholy. They praised her in soft, reverent voices. They could not say too much. Wie schön, wie rührend! Ach, die schottischen Lieder! Sie haben so viel Stimmung! Aber die gnädige Frau hat eine wunderbare Stimme. Die gnädige Frau ist wirklich eine Künstlerin. Aber wirklich! She was dilated and brilliant, like a flower in the morning sun. She felt Birkin looking at her, as if he were jealous of her and her breasts thrilled, her veins were all golden. She was as happy as the sun that has just opened above clouds, and everybody seemed so admiring and radiant. It was perfect. End of the second part of chapter 29 Recording by Ruth Golding